be with you. And also with you. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of each and every heart be acceptable in your sight, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. 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 Um, thus far, you know, we, we, we began with the book of Acts, and, and we were dealing with periods of the church probably more than anything else. Uh, you know, it's a long, long survey that I broke into specific periods. And in each period, we tried to isolate kind of one major reform, maybe a couple. Um, that is not the case when we come down to the American church. Uh, what we are going to talk about today, and, and I don't think we'll even get through the whole thing today, is we're talking about painting with uh, an enormous wide brush, uh, but and and we're looking at we're looking at a period of of, of history. Um, that, that is, um, it is vast, but there's an enormous, an incredible amount of change that has occurred in the American church versus the church in Europe. Um, now, a lot of reasons, uh, when we go clear back to the first time we were together, we talked about change is never really voluntary. We always change in reaction to something. And we tried to isolate some of the factors that has caused the church to change. Um, and, and also that the church has not changed, rarely has changed, uh, without being in, uh, in, in uh, symphony with, with all the changes that were going along in its culture. That we're talking about cultural periods of change. And, and we talked about that particularly when we came to the Reformation. Uh, Luther, Luther lived in a time of cataclysmic change, and uh, and and if we look at even today, um, there's an extreme parallel between Luther's time and today. Um, just for example, technological change that was happening um, in in the 16th century, and and I signaled out, uh, for example, the invention of movable type. Um, but, you know, if we look at today, movable type and, and, and computerized uh, information, in, in a sense, have some parallels. So we're living in a time of incredible change all around us. I mean, I don't have to tell you that. Uh, but change, uh, the changes that the church felt were always in harmony with the changes that went on in the culture. Some scholars have often wondered uh, if, if the church, if there would have been a Reformation yeah, without Luther. I mean, it, it just simply, because of the times, what was happening, the breakdown of a feudal system, the rise of a middle class, the development of guilds, um, that the, the church could no longer maintain any kind of stability. It had to be in flux to meet the needs of its, its culture. That'd be the same question I would ask today. Uh, the church cannot be the church, the church, my dear old church, uh, my father's and my own. Um, and the question, of course, then becomes the question of relevancy. Now, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna paint with a fairly wide brush, as I said today. Uh, we, we, we live, uh, I can't emphasize too much 
the 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 results of uh, the legalization of Christianity under the U.S. Constitution, and and what has uh, occurred as a result of that. Uh, I tried to emphasize. Remember that the first three centuries the church was living as a persecuted minority outside the protection of, of the state. Uh, it was voluntary, but to become Christian meant that you became outlawed. And then with the conversion of Constantine, of course, that set of circumstances changed, and now suddenly you have non-voluntary Christianity because you now create state church. You're Christian whether you like it or not because the emperor is Christian. Um, and, th and then that creates state church. Most of our relatives, I think, in this room, if we're Scandinavian or Germanic, probably uh, came under that sort of a set of circumstances. They, they were the product of state church. And, and, uh, and, then, and then began a period of enormous migration. Now, um, we talked last week about some of the reasons for, for migration or immigration. Uh, I, I talked in terms of the laws of primogeniture. If your brother is older than you, is, your brother is going to inherit everything. And, you know, how'd you like to work for your brother? Um, if uh, you were experiencing any kind of hardship, particularly economic hardship, uh, for example, famine, you have to you have to flee and you have to go somewhere. There were an, a large number of people. Um, there were a large number of people that came to the United States, particularly Scandinavians, to avoid something called state church. They 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 wanted religious freedom. They did not want uh, the Norwegian government or the Swedish government or the Finnish government or the Danish government controlling their religious life. And so they, they came here, and we talked about the various congregations, even in our locale, that uh, were founded as a result of those people coming here. Um, you wisely pointed out to me this morning that some people came here not voluntarily. Uh, there were uh, uh, enormous numbers of people who were enslaved and were shipped here and came not of their own free will. Um, not only were they slaves, but there were also enormous numbers of convicts that were sent here, not quite as many as the English government sent to New Zealand or Australia. But many of the people who came here uh, were convicted of something, and uh, they had a choice. You could, you, know, you could do your time, or you could come to the new world. And, and so anything was better than so they came here. So, so you have that, that set of circumstances. Um, you have, you know, I guess in any generation, uh, you have some people, I guess they're called fortune seekers. Um, they're adventuresome folk. Uh, they're the people that push the frontier. Um, and uh, they are the ones that took advantages of land grabs and uh, and cheap land and came here to colonize. And corporations in Europe particularly needed workers, uh, and there were whole industries that were dependent upon workers. Um, I just finished a, a strange little book on the cattle industry in the American West. 
uh, uh, which uh, I don't know whether that caught my attention. I think it caught my attention because of uh, of Teddy Roosevelt, um, who uh, who who went to uh, Montana and parts of Wyoming to do his ranching, but but there was a shortage of people um, who who would work in the cattle industry uh, in uh, in the American West. At that time, the whole meat production, the Swifts and the Armors were running. They were the they were the the mega people in, in the meatpacking industry, but they were brokered particularly by the Scotch and the Irish and the and the uh, and the British. So um, they were looking for workers, so they were importing workers into the American West, and and so we we again, had people coming for, for those kinds of reasons. Um, California, Alaska uh, were, were particularly attractive to these fortune-seeking people. Um, no different, perhaps, than uh, the oil boom uh, on the, uh, the Alaskan frontier. Took enormous numbers of people out of Wisconsin, Minnesota, and, and shipped them up to uh, northern Alaska. And after that one, uh, where do you go next? You, you go to the Permian Basin or you go out to the Dakotas. Uh, and uh, we, we have just experienced in just, what, past 15 years, enormous amounts of migration to these tiny little towns in western North Dakota who, uh, who, who are now stranded out there. Uh, because the oil has now moved to where? Texas. It was interesting this morning in the paper, um, Eau Claire and surrounding areas um, put put a lot of uh, a lot of energy and uh, took enormous amounts of chances on sand mining. And uh, it's interesting in the paper today that uh, the sand mining companies did exactly the same thing that the coal mining companies did in West Virginia and the areas of Pennsylvania where I'm from, and that is they, they stripped the land. Then they did an interesting thing. They reinvented themselves, sold their corporations under new names, escaped any kind of responsibility, and so you got a whole bunch of holes that are waiting to be reclaimed, but no money to do it. Um, that's going to be very interesting for areas like New Auburn, uh, Barron County, Chippewa County. Um, you can only create so many lakes. I mean, that's exactly uh, kind of what, what, what has happened. Uh, but but my, point, my point just simply is um, there's a whole number of people that are constantly, even today, in, in migration. We started these congregations in western North Dakota and they are now sitting there empty. And uh, it was going to be the boom towns. And, and today, uh, these Lutheran congregations, they're down to a trickle of members. We built schools. We built all kinds of service, uh, providing hospitals and everything else. But OK, um, as I said last week, what happens when in migration? Uh, when these enormous numbers of people came to the United States, uh, and they came, they came primarily 
Um, the, the new land offered opportunities for, for all sorts of things. But one of the main opportunities that it offered was the opportunity for conversion of, of the people who lived here and the people who came here who were unchurched. So there was a whole category of people that came to the United States out of missionary societies uh, that were active in, in Europe. The, the missionary societies in Europe were funding pastors to come to the, uh, the quote, new world. Uh, to do what? To, to convert the pagans. Huh? And there was no shortage of pagans to convert. Um, not only were there Native Americans to convert, there were uh, people who were enslaved to convert, and, and then there were a kind of the rogue population that came to the United States uh, and were kind of outlawed. Uh, I'd made a list, uh, I think, on the back uh, page of the one I gave you uh, last week. Who was the audience, the unconverted, the unbaptized, the independent folk who were not religiously affiliated, uh, the uneducated and the illiterate um, uh, women who were marginalized in Europe, blacks, slave and free, Native Americans, on and off reservations, um, rural people whose schedule uh, did not permit regular church attendance. Now, th that's something interesting if you think about that. Uh, in, in our area, um, we had people who came here. We had a shortage of pastors, um, and, and they, couldn't, they couldn't get to church. Uh, the Methodists solved this problem with th something called circuit riders. If the, if the people can't come to the church, you bring the church to the people. Lutherans were never quite that creative. Um, we still had a kind of congregational mindset. Uh, but if you think about uh, a farmers in those days' daily schedule, first of all, how often can you get to town? Well, you can't get to town regularly because uh, it was a major effort. And if you could get to town, you couldn't stay very long because you had chores to do and cows to milk and everything else. So in that sense, the church schedule um, fit around the, the life schedule of its population. Um, you didn't have midweek worship because no one could come. Um, for those of us who grew up in Missouri Synod, um, you couldn't come to church uh, twice, once to register for Holy Communion and, and go to confession, and then the second time to actually go to church on Sunday. So what do you do? Well, you, you put them together. Huh? So Sunday morning included not only the Sunday <laughs> worship, but also a time of confession and forgiveness. By the way, we're still doing that. Isn't that interesting? Our, our, the first part of our service uh, usually is confession and forgiveness because uh, it, there was a day when no one could do it midweek. Huh? Have, have you ever thought it was interesting that there's a little... There's a little uh, rubric or part of the service we call the introit. It means entrance. Now, don't, don't you find it interesting that we sing an entrance hymn and, and then 
we really don't enter. Um, we're we're already here. But but the clue is that the service did not begin where we normally think it begins. It began with the first we had confession and forgiveness. Then we had the introit. Because first we have to take care of this issue, which used to be a separate service, and then we combine it into one. Um, and, and so we're, we're saying an entrance hymn, but nobody enters anywhere. We're already there. Uh, the the point is that uh, much of much of what we do and did comes out of a time when we had an accommodation for some other sets of circumstances. That, I mean, our communion card idea. For example, you fill out a little communion card and hand it in. Uh, what what that originally was was evidence, it was a signed card that said you had already seen the pastor midweek and had registered to take communion and, and, and now you gave evidence of having done that. What we've got it down to now in the cases that, you know, it's still used, it looks like a ticket. But it came out of a time when there was a separation between preparation for Holy Communion and Holy Communion itself. So oftentimes it was a Thursday evening or even a Saturday night, but if you're farming and milking cows, you can't do that. So um, the problem, of course, in this new world and the churches in the new world um, was, uh, example, where do, you, where do you get your clergy? Where, where do your pastors come from? Well. Where they came from was the old country. Huh? So you had, for example, for Germans, you had missionary societies and seminaries that would send pastors to the United States, or what was the new, you know, what the, the new world. Now, um, that that works until you have an enormous number of need. So what do you have to do? Well, then you have to create seminaries here, and and, and we uh, and and we Lutherans, ELCA Lutherans. How many seminaries do we have? Well, we we have seven, but if you look back, each of them has ethnic roots. So the Germans, when they came here, um, they had two issues actually, as I talked about last week. They had the issue of a accommodation, you know, assimilation into the culture, or they had the issue of separation from the culture. So they had two seminaries, uh, one in Philadelphia and one in Gettysburg, that were both Germanic, not very far apart, but less than 150 miles apart, and, but, but, but they were about two different things. Uh, and and. They were about the whole issue of, uh, well, are we going to assimilate to the culture or, or are we going to become separate from the culture? So um, we, we have that, that issue. Where are, the, where are the Norwegians? Where are they going to train their clergy? Well, they're going to train a couple of places. 
Uh, they're going to train them at um, what was Luther Seminary in St. Paul. Um, and, and that was some of their pastors, but, but not all their pastors. Some of their pastors were going to be trained at Augsburg College, interestingly enough. And what's really interesting is that finally, Luther Seminary and Augsburg College are involved in a cooperative effort. I mean, talk a couple hundred years it has taken. Huh? Uh, Gettysburg Seminary and Philadelphia Seminary are now merged seminaries after how many hundreds of years? Uh, that's a, the church doesn't move very fast. You know, so, uh, and, and so we had some Germans, by the way, uh, who could not get along well with the Scandinavians, but did move west. They, they needed their own seminary again, too, so they went to Wartburg in Dubuque, Iowa, started a seminary there. And as the church moved further west, um, it began to create its seminaries in various places. Now, uh, we did not have quite the problem that the Episcopalians had. The Episcopalians had a real problem because Episcopalians, which were really um, Anglican. Who is the head of the Anglican Church? Remember we talked about the, the, um, the reform under Henry VIII, and Henry VIII said what? He's the king. <laughs> I'm the head of the church, okay? And so when they were sending clergy over here, okay, the clergy that the Episcopalians sent to the New World um, they had to honor the English king as the head of their church. But we got a problem, and you can see it. What happens in the American Revolution? In the American Revolution, suddenly uh, you, cannot, you cannot promise fidelity to the king, even if you're Episcopal. So w what do you do? Well, you create two Episcopalian churches. That's interesting. Um, you create one that's going to be in, again, sync with, and these are the Anglican Episcopalians, or you're going to create the Americanized Episcopalians. But Episcopalians have a problem that we Lutherans do not have. Uh, in order to become a bishop in the Episcopal Church, what do you have to have? You have to have laying on of hands of two other bishops, okay? Well, if you are, if you are in the United States and you have just separated from England, where do you get the bishops who will lay their hands on the new bishops? Well, you can't go to England, so where do you go? Well, you go to Canada. And, and somewhere in Canada, I don't remember this anymore, they found two bishops that would travel down to Massachusetts, lay hands on some people who were going to be the new bishops, and once you get a couple of Americanized bishops, then you're off and running. <laughs> now that's a strange little kind of dilemma, but you can see the, the, you can see the problem there that the Revolutionary War caused. Uh, it did not cause that for us, by the way. Our, our bishops are, ele are elected, okay, e except, by the way, in the Church of Sweden. The Church of Sweden, what do you have? 
You have, interestingly enough, something called apostolic succession. Heather? Um, the Swedes, by the way, came to the United States and didn't trust the Norwegians too much, so they needed to, so they needed to start their own college, even, and their own seminaries. So they created Gustavus Adolphus, and they created what is now, or was, Northwestern Seminary in St. Paul, uh, which has merged uh, now with Luther. And uh, it, it was called Luther Northwestern for a little bit, and then the Norwegian just ate him alive, and <laughs> now, now, it's, now it's simply Luther Seminary. But, but the, the, Swedish, the Swedish church to this day still claims apostolic succession clear back to the apostolic time. In other words, to be a bishop, you can only be conferred a bishop by someone who was a bishop. So there's, the, the, the Swedish church says that it's an unbroken chain that goes clear back to the apostle Peter. One might want to question that. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. But we all live with our myths. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. What I would like to do today is up until this time, we've, as I said to begin with, we've, we've looked at pieces of the church or segments of the church or eras of the church, and we kind of pulled out of that a major reform, some major change that occurred. Um, and, and today, though, when we come down to the American church, um, I'm going to suggest that there, there has never been a time in the church's 2,000-year history when there have been this many changes occurring. Now, I want you to, first of all, just think about in your own lifetime, what changes have you experienced within the church, and, and what were the causes of it? Okay? Larry? most dramatic changes for me was the ability to take communion. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you had to go through all of the education okay. and everything before you, and now it's just freely given as it should be. Okay, and, and that, that's, put the term on it, uh, Eucharistic hospitality. Who's, who's welcome at the table? Hmm? Is that correct? Yeah, uh, and remember we talked about talked about Camp A and Camp B. Um, <coughs> there, there is, a, growing up in the Missouri Synod, okay, you, you learned something called close communion. Is that correct? Close communion meant it, was, it wasn't closed. It was, but, but its proper term was close communion. In other words, you had to be of the same family to eat together. Okay? That, that would be like uh, uh, Camp A. The, the followers are of close communion. Um, who, who was a part of that? Roman Catholic, still today. Uh, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Lutheran Church of Wisconsin Synod. Uh, brethren, uh, Church of the Lutheran Confession, still practice something called close communion. And in order to eat together, we must believe the same. Is that, it's, a, it's ready for, the, go ahead. I was just going to say, um, 
when Heather was a teenager, so this is probably oh, 30 years ago, my parents were still living there. <coughs> we went to church with them. The pastor was not the pastor that had, you know, <laughs> baptized okay. me there, confirmed me there, married me there. Came up and to the pew and welcomed us and then said, um, you know, if we were Missouri Synod, we'd be welcome to take communion. Correct. And I said, well, I actually, you know, I think we were ALC before. Okay. And he, then he said, well, then we'd rather you didn't. Yeah. Well, Which is one of the reasons, by the way, one of two reasons why why pastors traditionally distributed the host or the bread. Because number one, supposedly the pastor knew who were in, those who were in and those who were out. But secondarily, the pastor also knew who was under the discipline of the church or was excommunicated, okay? So there were two reasons why the pastor always distributed the host first. So the, the theory here is that communion then is a sign of unity, the, the, similar to what your family, the people that eat together belong to the same family, okay? That, that's, that's probably the system you grew up under, Larry, okay? And, and, and so did I. Then the second camp of open community, of communion, is not that communion is a, a sign of unity, but it is a... It's a, it's, it's a means toward unity, so that even, even if we come out of different understandings, as we eat together, we're sharing a common union, communion, common union, and we might come together to experience the oneness that is intended for us. Now, you can, you can see that's an entirely different approach, and it's one of the major changes that has occurred um, yeah, in my in my lifetime. Yeah, Episcopalians um, join with us as um, as a part of Camp B. Methodists, I'm fairly certain, do. Uh, Presbyterians do. Uh, the differing groups are primarily Roman Catholics, and the two more, uh, I want to say, conservative uh, Lutheran synods, major Lutheran synods. Uh, as I moved into Wisconsin, I found Lutheran synods I never even heard existed. You know, I live I live right next to uh, Emmanuel Lutheran College in Eau Claire. Uh, I mean, they're one property over, and uh, that's Church of the Lutheran Brethren. I, I never heard of them. People ask me, well, "What do they believe?" I don't have any idea. You know. Uh, I, I know that they practice. I know that they practice close communion. So that's a major change that has occurred um, in this American church. Not only has it occurred for for Lutherans, but it has also occurred um, for uh, Episcopalians also. Okay, major changes that you have experienced within the church. Women, Women clergy. Okay. Um, in 40 years, Heather, or 50 years? Um, 50. 50 years, yeah. yeah. Beth Platts was the first Lutheran woman pastor. 
Um, University of Maryland. I think she's still there. Is she not? I don't know. I think she. I think she is. Okay. When I when I went to seminary, uh, I think I've mentioned this. First of all, anybody with a disability was not permitted to, um, to be ordained in what was then the ALC. So if you had a disability, you were seen as somewhat flawed. Then, yeah, that's good. Uh, then the next category of people were who? Blacks. Uh, and interestingly enough, in my in my tenure, um, Nelson Trout was the very first black pastor ordained in the ALC. And you know where they sent him? Ready for this one? <laughs> No, they, they, they sent him to Grace Lutheran Church in Eau Claire. Yeah. And uh, so Nelson Trout was the very first black pastor. Um, he was a, not only was he an oddity, his children were having a very, very difficult time. Um, uh, and then Nelson went on to Michigan and then on became a bishop within the church. But his very first call was Grace Lutheran in Eau Claire. What, what year would that have been done? Geez, that's a good question. Uh, yeah, I talk about 1970s. I'm thinking of the 70s. Yeah. My goodness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember the name. I remember yeah. that. Uh, mm -hmm. well. There's still a lecture series in his name. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, so that's the next category of people. Third category. Women. women? Yeah, women. Uh, very first uh, woman, as I said, is her name was Beth Platts. Uh, the first woman in, and she was LCA. Uh, the first woman in the ALC was Margaret Paulson, I think her name was. Uh, Margaret was an interesting character in that she was not only in a wheelchair, but she was a woman. Um, when I went to seminary, we, we didn't even have, we didn't have women's restrooms. So they, yeah, so they took extra men's rooms and put a masking tape over, you know, they became women's restrooms. Um, Margaret, Margaret died in a fire uh, in Baltimore, Maryland, um, because she couldn't get out. She was in a wheelchair. But she, she's an interesting person. <laughs> so then we have uh, disabled people, we have blacks, and then we have women. And now, gay. now we have gay. Okay? And, and that's just an, 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 an every single one of those was met with some type of division and some type of exodus. That's how Lutherans solve problems, by the way. We, we, form, we form schisms or we form other branches or other synods. Okay? I mean, there were, there were, there were no arguments that I heard about gay, lesbian ordination that I had not heard three other times. Just in my own lifetime. You know, um, all the same scriptures were quoted, you know, and we threw Bible verses at each other. This, oh, there was a group called There was a group called Lutheran's Alert or Word Alone which uh, you all ought to be very familiar with here. 
But that's interesting. It doesn't show much originality because in the 60s, there was the same groups called by the same titles that did what? They opposed liberalism in the seminaries and source criticism. Okay? So I say, you know, hey, if, I don't mind your forming an organization, but at least come up with an original title. <laughs> okay. Um, in fact, um, the, the, the little book, the little book that I put together um, describes a, a word alone congregation in the south side of Columbus that I worked at, believe it or not. Um, and actually, I learned something about being a pastor there. I didn't learn much about literalism, but um, yeah. Um, okay, so we've got ordination of various groups, huh? Open ordination, I guess I would call it. Uh, Eucharistic hospitality. What else do we have? Just changes. What have we experienced? back to people mm -hmm. like the left our saviors yeah a lot of good friends of mine yeah. try yeah. to talk me into going with them to this new church mm -hmm. uh, and I respect them I mean they're all good friends and I think they're intelligent people I never can quite get the handle on why they had to leave you know I never I never could understand that I still don't today I mean, I know they're um, the news, what, the North American Senate or something like that? Yeah. Uh, I, I, I would say if you ask them and say, I, didn't want to, I don't want to be dishonest, and I didn't want to be a part of something, the answer that I always got was, I didn't leave the church. The ELCA left me. The ELCA become, became non-biblical and non-confessional. Heather, is that fairly accurate? Probably in terms of a sense of, yeah. And trust, I mean, there was a lot of trust. That's what um, they had trust and faith in their pastor. Yeah, yep. right? Yes, yeah, he, yes, he did. Yeah. I, I don't know of, uh, here's my wide brush again. I, I don't know of a single one of those exodus that was not led by the pastor. I'm trying to think of, you know. And I could press that even further. I thought it was interesting that we had a bishop at that time um, who he, he himself was a member of a group called Solid Rock Lutherans. Solid Rock Lutherans were a group of people who were opposed to the ELCA to begin with. Huh? And, and he's our bishop. And interestingly enough, um, the congregations that left, including our saviors, all had pastors that were placed in those places by that bishop. That's interesting. Now, you know, if it looks like a cow, acts like a cow. My daddy said, you know, um, it, it, yes. Isn't uh, a lot of us, though, single-issue people uh, are unable to see other people's point of view. I would agree. And uh, we see it 
I don't know in my lifetime if I've ever seen the division as dramatic as it is in so many different areas. Pick an issue. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's just the inability, the inability to at least listen to what somebody else thinks. But, you know, interestingly enough, Larry, there, there was a phenomenon in the United States that affected every denomination except Roman Catholics, Episcopalians, and Lutherans. What was it? Civil War. We were the only, we were the only Protestant denomination that remained unsplit over the Civil War. <coughs> Methodists <laughs> split all over the place. Baptists, wow, got split all over the place. Even, even though we have a seminary, a Lutheran seminary in South Carolina. Now, you, you don't get any more uh, Confederate than that area. They're still fighting it. But, but Lutherans remained unscathed. Now, it tells me maybe we should at least do some examination and find out what was going on back then that allowed us to remain united in the midst of something that split our very nation. Yeah, maybe we could learn something. But look at the issues now that divide churches and divide our nation. Well, what are they? Abortion. Abortion. Okay. Uh, two. Gun control, immigration. immigration, even though we're we're the product of it. Four? Any? He's the king. Dictatorship. I, I I'm not hearing. Dictatorship. Uh, globalism. I think you probably yeah. Um, I, I think our president would say we need a dictator-type person to lead us through all of these things. Only, you know, there's a distrust of democracy. So, um, any any of the other major issues right now? Immigration, Lang language, huh? English is the second language. No, English is voting rights. I mean, name an issue. Immigration. Immigration. Yeah. Um, but every one of these has affected churches. Well, if you think about that, uh, something called patriotism, and what, however you define that. Um, so, okay. Um, any anything else uh, in, in, that you are aware of that ha has caused divisions? Um, America first. America, America first, yeah, yeah. And, and what we're doing with any kind of a, a allegiances to any other organizations, yeah. NATO, um, League of Women, or uh, League of Nations, United Nations, uh, it's America first. Yeah. Iso called isolationism, huh? Yeah. yeah. Which is climate change. Climate change, okay. Every one of those are divisive issues. Um, how about, um, how, how about, uh, 
civil rights and what effect that had on American churches. An, an enormous effects on American churches. It's interesting, it's interesting in civil rights, where did the leadership come from? Out of churches. Mm-hmm. I mean, Martin Luther King, huh? Uh, where did the resistance come? Churches. <laughs> churches. Interestingly enough. I mean, we're great at being on both ends of the parade. Yeah. Remember, for every action, there's a equal. Yeah. So there's always a counter-reformation. Um, a couple of issues that probably escaped you in your lifetime and me in my lifetime. One was the issue of predestination. It split many, many uh, congregations in all denominations in the United States. Predestination is what the, the idea that God has already decided that Al May will be saved. And Al, you can't do anything about that. It's your, it's your destiny. Okay? Now you can do something called double predestination, which means God has already decided uh, the fate of Steve Annabur. It's not to be saved, no matter what he does. Now, this swept Lutheran churches as well as just about all denominations primarily Methodists, but, but Lutherans did not escape it. This was the battle at Luther Seminary in St. Paul back in the 30s and 40s, the whole issue of predestination. Okay. Um, one I'm going to guess that has maybe escaped you, um, the, whole mo- the, the whole movement in the United States of called the Lodge Movement split churches. Of secret societies, including what? Uh, Masons, Eastern Star. Uh, well, I think the one that affected many, many Lutheran churches was Boy Scouts, uh, were seen as pledging allegiance to false gods. That's, the, that's what's behind that movement. So, for example, um, in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, you could not be a member of the Masonic Order or the Eastern Star and be Lutheran in Missouri Synod. Hmm? That did not affect, interestingly enough, the ALC and the LCA. It did not affect us. Uh, I don't know whether we're just simply lax <laughs> or, or what. Uh, when my father was, as I think I've told you before, my father was baptized when I was confirmed. But prior to that, um, he, he was, a, I guess, a nominal Mason. He was never in one place long enough, I guess, to ever attend any time. But anyhow, he was a Mason, and in order to become Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, he had to give up uh, his membership in the Masonic Order, which was not much of a sacrifice for him. Um, but interestingly enough, when we went through my father's stuff when he died, he had a Masonic Bible, um, which, you know, um, he had not only a Masonic Bible, but he also had his Bible that he was given when he was enlisted in World War One by the uh, fore- forerunner of the Gideons. Um, 
The major issue today, a major issue that divides Lutherans, Roman Catholics, and just about every denomination, uh, is the issue that is almost subtle. But I'm, but 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 Heather and all Lutheran pastors are struggling with it, and and that's the issue of worship style. That. So how do we solve that? Well, we solved it conveniently, as Lutherans like to do. Okay, you you don't know what you want to do. We'll we'll do both. We'll have a we'll have a traditional service, whatever that means, huh? And then we'll have a contemporary service. Okay, and we'll we'll basically create two congregations. That and 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 that shouldn't be too novel to us because. When we when we were introduced to another version of the Our Father or the Lord's Prayer, what did we do? Um, okay, we'll print both of them. We'll call one traditional, again, whose tradition. Number two, the other one called the ICET, International Consultation on English Texts. So we'll give you we'll give you two choices. Um, that that's that's the way we Lutherans take care of things. But but think about think about the divisive nature of what's going on in Lutheran congregations today. Now, if if we call a service tradition, the question I just answered, I think partially, is by what tradi- whose tradition? I mean. My home congregation, if we were going to have a traditional service, it would be in German. You know? I mean, that's somebody's tradition there. And, and also, what does it mean to be contemporary? Contemporary, the word means what? With time. I always find it interesting that in contemporary services, what, what's the era of a lot of our music? 1970s, huh? Um, the word contemporary for my grandsons is far different. I mean, if if you took them to a contemporary service, it wouldn't sure look like what we're doing, huh? And 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 therefore, they would say, "Hey, wait, um, what is this?" I mean. Um, the contemporary music my grandsons play, and two of them are in bands, I can't even recognize as music, to be quite honest. I mean, it's loud. But, but it is their music, and it is contemporary because it means it's in their time. So you, you can see where this language is, it's loaded language, but yet it's divisive. So there, there isn't a pastor that I know uh, worth much these days that isn't struggling with that. Um, what language shall we borrow? That's the, that's the question. Uh, how, do you, how do you solve that issue? Heather? Yeah. Now, sometimes we point to like mega churches or congregations that are growing rapidly, and how do they solve the problem? Um, 
by offering all kinds of services. But you see, they're not as concerned as we are with the unity of a congregation. Um, the, 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 goal, the goal there is to get people in the door. That, that's not, I think, our goal. Or with the, the worship experience as participation and not as, you know, that, that's not the concern. No. It's performance rather than participation. And so what we do is we watch worship happen. And if you look at architecturally, what we have created is what? Theater. Is that? Now, I've pointed this out before, but there was a, a major change in our understanding of congregational life that occurred with the ELW, or, uh, excuse me, LBW, the Lutheran Book of Worship, the Green, the Green Hymnal. The Green Hymnal was probably one of the most radical things that ever came out, and yet most congregations missed the theology and focused on the music. It's it's a it's it's a a liturgy and a collection of worship resources that form the congregation as a congregation. It's the first time we ever had assisting ministers, for example. It's the first time we ever had appointed roles for leaders, readers, ushers, um, that people now are, are to do something together, not watch something happen, but do something together. And so where does, where does worship take place? In the midst of the people. It wasn't accidental uh, that when this congregation was redesigned, huh? Where did they put the cross? In the middle of the people. Hmm? Isn't that interesting? Because that was the architect's understanding of the role of a congregation. So we no, no, no longer had an altar up in the front. We now had an altar as a table. People could gather around it. And where is the cross? In the midst of the people. Now that redefines, that redefines what it means to be the people of God gathered. Now, again, okay, here's my pejorative comment. What we have done is, in one sense, taken that dimension away and created now a congregation of spectators again. Where does the action take place? Well, we've got two screens up there. Huh? You don't have to know anything anymore. You don't have to be uh, liturgically um, uh, literate. Just sort of watch the bouncing ball. Huh? And, and as a result, then, we become what? A congregation that watches something happen. Rather than a congregation that participates within it. As I said, that's a pejorative comment, and I get to make those once in a while, okay? So that you can bring somebody in off the street, and immediately they can participate. Well, that's true to a sense, but, but what happens? They, they do not participate in what it means to be actively involved in the life of a, the people of God. Huh? 
You can do one dimension. You can watch worship happen and participate in it, but you can't participate in the life of the congregation until you have been assimilated. That's very, very interesting. So we create a whole crew of spectators. You don't like what's going on here at this show? Well, you can go across town maybe, you know, there's, there isn't a sense of loyalty in a congregation. And, and we have created an interesting thing. We have an 8 o'clock congregation and a 10.30 congregation, or an 8.30 congregation. We have two real congregations. So how do you find out? You have to have a big funeral to find out who even belongs. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. So what's the answer? Maybe one of the answers is to recognize really what we've got, that we have a building that houses two congregations. And look at it that way. That'd be more honest. Hmm? Yeah. Well, um, how, about, how about moral issues that have separated us? For a long, long time, one of the issues was the issue of divorce. If you were divorced as a Lutheran clergy, you what? You left. You don't even pass go, you don't collect $200, you leave. Okay? We now have a divorced clergy. We have divorced bishops. That's changes that occurred in my lifetime. Okay? Um, how, about, how about our acceptance, not acceptance, I don't want to put acceptance. Our, recog our recognition that suicide does not move you outside the grace of God. How about that? That's changed in my lifetime. Okay. Not all religions feel that hmm? way. Not all religions feel that way. No. But but it is an issue right. that has has happened uh, within the church. How about celibacy? Okay. It's an issue that is uh, present in Roman Catholic Church. Barry? I remember uh, listening to my mother-in-law, Laurel's yeah. mom, talk about when she first became a teacher, you could not be married. Great. And then there was a time when you could be married, but you couldn't be pregnant and serve in the classroom. That's right. My wife lost her job that way. It's just an amazing thing. in the summer. Mm -hmm. We don't need the kids to work on the farm anymore. That's why it was first established. Yep. But we I need them to work at Wisconsin Dell. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why we don't yeah. start school yeah. until yeah. after yeah. Labor Day. Labor Day. <laughs> That's an excellent point. Yeah. When, when I went to For seminary, uh, you were encouraged to be married to the point where um, this is this is this will blow your mind. Okay, the president of the seminary, whose name was Edward Fent, would he held the keys to the seminary apartments that were on the seminary grounds, and he would come and create inspections of your apartment to see that your wife was a good housekeeper. 
I don't make this up. I don't. Janice and I, this is probably my first example of rebelliousness, but we refused to live in seminary housing and it was very, very disturbing to him. Um, because, because on the sheet of paper that a seminary, when a congregation got to, you know, inform them about the pastor they were going to call, it had a, a little thing called helpfulness of spouse. Oh. Yeah. That's amazing. That's amazing. If you were, if you were not married, one of the things that was hoped is when you went on internship, you would find someone. Yeah. Don? I was on a church council of a church and we were interviewing a new pastor. Mm -hmm. And somebody on the council asked him, well, what is your wife going to be doing? Mm -hmm. And he says, you know, you're not calling my wife. Yep. So I thought that was a pretty good remark. Well, in a sense, the church did call our wives. You came as a couple, and there was the pastor's wife, and she was the kind of first lady of the congregation. You had that here. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. people are still telling me about Mrs. Bow and Mrs. yeah, and you know, Mrs. Holloway yeah. and what they did, and Mrs. Lang how what she yeah. did, and you know, they, I used to jokingly say, so many times in those situations, the Holy Spirit landed on the wrong shoulder. <laughs> um, we should have called. We should have called the wife. And the husband came along. Well, uh, yeah, we're, we're going to pick up on this uh, next week, and and the issue I'd like to look at next week uh, primarily is I'd like to look at again the changes that have occurred in our lifetime, what has caused them, and, and number two, I want to look at two documents. Uh, Baptism, Eucharist, and Ministry, which was uh, an ecumenical document, and then the document for Roman Catholics, which caused the greatest change with Vatican II. And so we'll look kind of at those two issues. Great. Yeah. I think uh, one of the changes that I've noticed in my lifetime is so many of my friends have gotten old. Yeah. Funny how that happens. Yeah, if you uh, if you were not married, you were considered gay. That was the unwritten. That was the unwritten kind of comment. Yeah. Pastor John was telling me one time when he was in seminary, he went to Luther, and he said if you were engaged and broke that engagement, you had to go and talk to the bishop or to the head of the church. Yeah, had to go talk to the president of the seminary. Yeah, because the president of the seminary. Um, met with all of the, what were called district presidents in those days, and it looked like the NFL draft. That's exactly the way it looked, and would divvy up the graduates to the various districts of the church. At that time, there were 19 only. Uh, now we have, what, 50, 61? I think something like that. But the, the, the seminary president was to know the whole background uh, of the candidates. And, um, yeah. It was still referred to as the draft when I went through candidacy. Yes. The draft. Yeah. The draft. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> my day, a, a pastor never took a drink. Oh, you didn't know. Oh, that. God. Unless you were German. Of course. Mm -hmm. German, yeah. yeah. I had a beer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And in, in the German church, it was kind of interesting. You, you were supposed to take a drink. 
uh, you know, it was when you came and made a call. Oh. But you, but you better never be drunk. <laughs> it was always about moderation. It was about moderation. The parish that I grew up in, St. John's, uh, we had a beer tent at the Sunday school picnic. And the reason, well, the reason we had that was, how do you? That's where you make the money to buy the Sunday school materials. Yeah. yeah. And that's that's a Germanic tradition. Yeah, after all. Yeah. We, see, we didn't have to worry about Norwegians. We didn't have any. Yeah.